0: Good morning. I want to start off by declaring right away that this is a judgment-free zone. There is no shame, no guilt, no judgment, because I want to talk about New Year's resolutions. I don't know about you, if you make them, keep them, or break them or if you're one of those enlightened individuals who has moved on from this and has just naturally has a perfectly balanced, disciplined life. If so, are you still accepting more uh, life coaching clients? But for the rest of us, there is something very alluring, seductive even, about making resolutions. Oh, the power of a written list on January 1st. I will walk 20 miles a day. I will read three books every evening. I will only eat plant-based foods. I will set up the coffee pot every night before I go to bed. And I will return all of my library books on time. (laughs) A few recent studies, however, paint a somewhat less rosy picture about New Year's resolutions. Although most people are fairly optimistic when they make their New Year's resolutions, about 25% of resolution makers have not been successful in keeping their resolutions in the first week. After about a month, only 64% of those who have made resolutions have been able to keep them. So we're a little over the one-month mark, so we're probably about 62% success rate right now. It gets really depressing when you look at the end of the year. That's when we're hovering around the 9% mark. I'm not sure where you are in these statistics, but it's easy to end up feeling really bad about ourselves along the way. This same dynamic often applies to self-improvement books or regimes. We can be drawn to five steps to improve our health or ten tricks to increase our wealth. And of course, there can be some wisdom here. It's generally a good idea to spend less than one earns. But we've received a lot of conditioning to look at lists as something that we can do to make ourselves better and our lives better. And I'm bringing this up because I have a suspicion that we can approach the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 with a similar mindset. This section from Matthew 5 is not in our reading this morning, but Mother Amanda mentioned it last week as part of the reading for uh, last week. And we can look at this list of seemingly impossible standards and try to do better or probably more likely beat ourselves up because we are painfully aware how much we have fallen short of this list. And I'm bringing up the Beatitudes again this morning in part because this passage, Matthew Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, is an important part of the passage that we just uh, heard this morning from Matthew. And I think we can approach the Beatitudes somewhat like a self-improvement project. We look at them as a checklist of what it makes uh, for a good Christian, and then we resolve to be more like this list. In the end, this list can end up beating us up because we realize that we have fallen short. Like New Year's resolutions, we can feel defeated and discouraged. But I'd like to suggest a different way of reading the Beatitudes. This isn't the only way to read them. In fact, there are dozens of ways of understanding and interpreting the Beatitudes. But this is an approach that I have found to be helpful and encouraging. It begins with the first Beatitude. Blessed are, or we could even say God blesses the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We've heard this verse so many times that it's easy to skip over it and not really grasp what it's getting at. As Jesus was teaching these things, there were no doubt those who were painfully experiencing the crushing realities of utter material poverty. They had no ability to help themselves or to reverse their circumstances. As one commentator puts it, they were economically destitute. But Matthew 5.3 adds the qualifier, in spirit, those who are poor in spirit. This doesn't diminish material poverty in any way, but the image forces us to consider our own spiritual condition in terms of utter bankruptcy with no possibility of reversal or help. This is the total inability to have anything spiritually that we can draw upon. This is the realization that none of our good works and none of our best efforts are able to counter the reality that we have nothing that we bring in and of ourselves before God that qualifies us to have access to the kingdom of heaven. I know this sounds very depressing, and you may be fearing a sermon about human depravity. But Jesus says that the ones who are in this condition are blessed. How can that be? It's because it's only when we are truly aware of our own fallen condition, of our own inability to improve ourselves, of our own failure to keep our own resolutions that we can finally let go and stop trying. We can recognize that we have nothing to offer God by ourselves, and that this is actually good news. In fact, it's the essential starting place. Now, I want to be clear that this is the condition that we are in apart from Christ. He has redeemed us and he is making us what we cannot be ourselves. But until we come to the place of truly seeing our own spiritual bankruptcy, we will be tempted to try to improve ourselves in our own strength and according to our own standards. Instead, when we are able to fully grasp that we have nothing to offer God and that we are completely unable to enter the kingdom on our own merits, then ironically, we find that the kingdom of heaven is actually ours. This is like the foolishness that Mother Amanda preached about last week. This is so countercultural. There is nothing in human logic that prepares us for this. We are taught from the very beginning that we must be good enough, we must work harder, be smarter, be more disciplined, and that we can get whatever we want if we just try hard enough. Now, this works for some things, but this is not how the kingdom works. Instead, in a completely counter-cultural way, Jesus is saying that none of these qualifications enable us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Our entrance ticket involves realizing that we are completely and fully spiritually bankrupt in our own spiritual merits. And it is then that the kingdom is fully ours. This is incredibly freeing. We can stop the resolutions and the self-improvement projects. Instead of trying harder, we can stop and actually receive the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this is the key for understanding the rest of the Beatitudes. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In part, this means those who mourn over their own spiritual bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. They will be comforted as they realize that Jesus understands this condition and that he was willing to die on our behalf because of it. This doesn't uh, mean that it doesn't apply to other types of mourning. It does. But a lot of our mourning comes from the fallenness of our world. So perhaps this is looking at spiritual bankruptcy at a larger level. The recognition of our spiritual bankruptcy and our lament leads to a deep humility, a humility that enables us to recognize that we are truly not better than others. It relates to the meekness that Mother Amanda spoke about last week. From this humility comes gentleness toward others. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. This again defies human logic. Now there's a lot of debate about what this means, but I'm going to understand it. I understand it in terms of redeemed humanity being restored to the dominion and the stewardship over creation that God originally intended, and for the future rule with Christ that is promised to believers. It's a rich promise. From there, we move to the next beatitude: "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled." On the reading that I'm suggesting, this would first involve hunger and thirst for righteousness in our own lives. That we would hunger and thirst for it with the same intensity that we have for food and drink. And the promise is that we will indeed be filled. From this fullness, we are then able to hunger and thirst for righteousness in every situation around us. Righteousness that righteousness would prevail in every situation of injustice and evil that surrounds us, both individually and collectively, both locally and globally. Again, this next the next beatitude flows from this, for it says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When we understand our own spiritual bankruptcy, we mourn um, and we mourn for our own condition, then we can be truly humble and we hunger, and when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we are able to be truly merciful to others. How could we not extend mercy when we have experienced so much of it in our lives? And as we extend mercy to others, we will receive even more mercy for ourselves. From here we read, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again, I think that most of us think that we have to get pure in heart so that we can see God. We think about all the impure thoughts that we have, and perhaps subconsciously we embark on another cleanup campaign. But it's important to understand, it's it's important to understand that we do need to guard our hearts, but I don't think that this is what this verse is talking about. Instead, when we see our own spiritual condition truly as it is, then we are able to see God as he is. The pure in heart are those who have no delusions about their own righteousness, and because they have seen that, they are able to see God and to know that he alone is the answer. This posture of humility and understanding of oneself opens up the way for the next beatitude, namely, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called daughters and sons of God. When we are no longer trying to defend or promote ourselves, then we are free to walk in peace with others. Mm -hmm. This is the promise of healing, of divisions between individuals and within the community. This flows from the peace that we have received because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very peace that we are able to extend to each other. And it is one of the best parts of our Sunday morning worship, right? When we can share the peace with each other. Now, it shouldn't be surprising that persecution will accompany this kingdom righteousness. This way of understanding ourselves is completely contrary to the world's ways and views. It goes against everything that we're taught about how to succeed in life. It is counterintuitive. But recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ is actually liberating, as I've been saying, and brings us into the fullness of the kingdom. That's why in verse 12 we read, be glad and rejoice, be glad and rejoice indeed, because the kingdom is more glorious and more beautiful than any kingdom on earth. And it is ours because of Jesus Christ. So this finally brings us to the gospel passage that was read this morning. Here Jesus reveals to us his kingdom followers. What is our true role in the world? We are salt and light. We begin with salt. Now, for most of us, salt is a flavor enhancer and probably too much of one. The average American consumes nearly twice as much salt per day as is recommended. And some estimates have said that the average American will consume 30,000 pounds of salt in one's lifetime. That's a lot of salt. But in the ancient world, salt was probably more important as a preservative. The Sea of Galilee is a very important uh, source of fish. It has a kind of tilapia that if any of you have been to Israel, you might've experienced as St. Peter's fish. It also has uh, carp and sardines, lots of fish. But there's just one problem. In the first century, how do you get fish from the middle of Judea to the other parts of the Roman Empire? Well, you pack it in salt, of course. Additionally, salt was uh, frequently collected from the evaporation along the Dead Sea or in salt marshes, so it was not pure. The actual salt from these sources could leach out or become diluted and eventually it lost its salty qualities. That's how you can lose saltiness. Um, And when that happens, it's completely worthless. Not good for taste, flavor enhancing and not good for uh, preservation. So this is the image that Jesus has, that we are like preservatives in the various contexts into which we are placed. As we enter those places, we bring life-giving preserving qualities in the presence of the spirit who dwells in us. Now, I became aware of this when I was working in an archives of a major university. It is somewhat tedious work, you are down in a basement, and the staff took a coffee break every single day together, every morning. When I first started working there, these breaks were filled with the latest juicy gossip and a lot of off-color jokes. I wasn't really offended, but I didn't really feel like I could participate. Um, and I actually don't think it's really good for a soul to be participating in those kinds of things anyway. So I never said anything directly, but I just didn't join in. After a while, my co- coworkers realized that I wasn't saying anything. And without my saying one word, they started changing the conversation. They started talking about books they were reading, about TV shows they were watching, topics with which I could engage. After a few months, there was far less gossip, and there were a lot fewer crass jokes. And again, I never said anything, but the presence and the lack of our participation eventually changed things. Um, I believe that it's better for everyone (laughs) when they're not engaging in things that are not edifying. Um, It's better kind of as a preservative for their own souls. So sometimes this is how I think it works. We can prevent corruption just merely by our presence. And in that way, I think is how we can be salt. Um, I also don't wanna completely dismiss the flavor enhancer. And I think really, in a sense, what Jesus is saying is that in us, people get the opportunity to taste how good God is. And they want more of his kingdom because of that. This is a wonderful hope, but the image also has a caution If we are deluded by the world and we become just like those around us who are not in the kingdom, then we lose our spiritual effectiveness. Jesus follows this with uh, another very powerful image. We are the light of the world. This is how Jesus identifies himself, especially in John's Gospel. Light in the Bible is almost always associated with truth and the knowledge of God. It's the opposite of darkness which is associated with rejection of God and sin now in the first century villages and towns were often built on hills or in an exposed area um, and they were made of limestone which when the sun shines on it's beautiful in fact if you've been in these areas you know that just before sunset there's about an hour it's called the golden hour when these buildings are just beautifully lit up at night the light from these little oil lamps would be very hard to hide, therefore you could not hide the city. And similarly, oil lamps were placed either in a little crevice up in the wall or on a lampstand. You do not put them under a bowl, okay? Um, So just like the salt image, this image is evangelistic in nature, really. When those outside the kingdom interact with us, they can taste and see the goodness of God. The good works mentioned here, uh, flow from our understanding of our utter need for God that comes from the Beatitudes and it flows from our understanding of being a part of God's kingdom. These can be little things like shoveling the snow from a neighbor's driveway or bringing dinner to a family with small children. It can mean encouraging coworkers or taking an interest in those who clean our offices. It's any number of ways that others can taste and see the goodness of God on display in our lives. The point is that we are not able to hide this light, but we are to shine it in a way that uh, with everyone that we interact with outside of the kingdom. Both of these metaphors show that those who have been transformed by the values of the kingdom have real impact on the world around them we truly make a difference. And this is also counterintuitive. It's not the power brokers, it's not the politicians who have true power, but those who are in the kingdom. We are the light of the world. We who are humble and seemingly weak are the ones who have the light that draws people to the Father and to the kingdom. Now the next part or the last part of this passage can be easily misunderstood. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus declares that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. There are several ways to understand what Jesus is saying here. But first, he is clearly not saying that the law is bad and the gospel is good. And I don't think he's saying that he has fulfilled every single requirement of the law. Instead, I think the key here is the link between the law and the prophets and how Jesus fulfills both. Now, we understand that Jesus clearly fulfills prophecies that were made about him, but we don't often think about the law as being revelatory. In the law, we find the true righteousness of God revealed. Every letter and every stroke of the pen points to the holiness and the righteousness of God every law, about clean and unclean, about holy and impure, all point to the perfect righteousness of God, which is fully seen and understood in Jesus. In this way, the law points to Jesus and he perfectly fulfills it. Thus, no part of the law can pass away. In Jesus, the righteousness of the law is perfectly fulfilled. Now, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus transitions from how the law points to him to how his followers are to interact with the law. The distinction between the least and the greatest has suggested to some that there is some kind of hierarchy in the kingdom. I'm not sure that's the point here. Instead of focusing, instead the focus concerns teaching others about the law, either negatively to disregard it or positively to obey it. The key is to understand what Jesus has just declared about how he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. In essence, he is saying that every part of what we call the Old Testament scripture is important and it must be obeyed, not in a legalistic way, but as it has been fulfilled in Jesus. This becomes clearer in the section on the Sermon on the Mount that follows today's passage. And if I'm stepping on the next preacher's toes, I'm sorry. Um, But there, Jesus shows the intent of the Ten Commandments, that it is not merely external compliance, but rather a changed heart. Now, it's enough not to murder. That's a pretty good thing, not to murder. But those in the kingdom are called to not even hate someone. It's enough to avoid adultery but those in the kingdom are called to not have lustful thoughts about someone else. This is also the key to understanding Jesus' statement about a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. To his original audience, this would have been unthinkable. And even to us, this can sound like an impossible standard and an invitation to extreme legalism. Sounds like a reality show or something. It is an impossible standard, but it is not legalism. It's impossible because it is only possible for those who are in Christ and in the kingdom. Now, not all Pharisees were outside of the kingdom. We just have to think about Nicodemus. But Jesus here in this passage is contrasting those who are outside the kingdom and who are relying on their own righteousness and those who are inside the kingdom where a different understanding of God's righteousness is found. It is the righteousness that is only fulfilled in Jesus, and it is the righteousness that he is urging his followers to seek and to obey. So this takes us back to the Beatitudes. We began by understanding our own spiritual bankruptcy, and when we do, we can enter the kingdom because we have ceased trying. We have a posture of humility that enables us to receive the blessings of the kingdom. It's peace, it's righteousness, it's mercy. We're able to enter into our life-giving roles as salt and light, and we are called to obey an impossible standard of righteousness that is only possible in Jesus. I know this is a meaty passage. I told some of you to fasten your seatbelts before I got going. And I've probably bitten off more than I can chew and I might not be asked back for a while. But it's just so encouraging and so exciting to consider how radical the kingdom of God is. We get to experience God's goodness, his righteousness, as we grow in his word and as we grow in our love for one another. We get to see the kingdom transforming us right here, right now right in this room, and for those of you joining remotely, in this space he is bringing about his kingdom. And we get to see the kingdom advance into Highwood, into all of our communities. This is such a privilege and such a joy. And I would add, it is so much better than New Year's resolutions or self-improvement projects. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have such a vast and glorious kingdom and that we get to be a part of it. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that. It's good news when we can recognize that we don't have what it takes to enter, but that you do, and that you have given everything so generously, so freely. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be encouraged that the passage that we read and the Beatitudes that follow, uh, precede are an invitation to such goodness, to such righteousness, to the very things that our souls long for. I pray, Father, that we'd be deeply encouraged that it is not our efforts. Although we participate, of course, we put every effort in, <laughs> that we can into into following you, but it is ultimately about your power working through us, the power of your Holy Spirit that raised you from the dead. We thank you so much that this is good news and we thank you so much that we get to be a part of your kingdom. What a privilege. We pray these things in your holy and precious name, Lord. Amen.